Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Monica, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. And today is Wednesday, April 24th, 2013. And today we are reading from the big book, and we are in Bill's story, page 3. We will be reading at the bottom of the page where it starts, in 1929, I contracted. And today's readers are the 12 Steps, Rose, 12 Traditions, Margaret Kay, and then it will be Judy B., Michelle, Sharon, and Fran. And the share code for yesterday, Tuesday, the 23rd of April, is 4342. 4342. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeater, overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and the 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. And I will now ask Rose to please read the 12 steps. Thank you, Monica. Good morning. This is Rose, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. The 12 Steps. 1. We admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. 2. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. 3. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us 
and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Rose. I will now ask Margaret Kay to please read the 12 Traditions. Good morning, Monica. Good morning, Vision for You. This is Margaret from South Jersey, Compulsive Overeater. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group would never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name in any related facility or outside enterprise as problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group wants to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, OREERS Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA is such that never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 10, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11, our public relation policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. And 12, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions ever reminding us to place principles before personality. Thank you, NIPS. Thank you, Margaret. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing, and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. And once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass, and then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone, except the speakers, should be muted. And today we shall resume our study of the big book, and we are in Bill's story on page 3, the bottom paragraph that begins, In 1929, I contracted Gulf fever. And I will ask Judy B. to begin reading, please. Good morning, Monica. Good morning, everyone. This is Judy B., Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Massachusetts. In 1929, I contracted golf fever. We went at once to the country. My wife to applaud what I started out... 
my wife to applaud while I started out to overtake Walter Hagen. Liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night. It was fun to curl around the exclusive course which had inspired such awe in me as a lad. I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do. The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with amused skepticism. This paragraph just really describes uh, the point in Bill's life where uh, drink was progressing and his thinking was way out of whack. He He was just... Um, in another space, he was just uh, gloating with with all of the uh, plus that he that he thought he had. Um, he was in another world. He was he was at this point in what he thought was a great high, and yet liquor was part of his, so much a part of his life that it was it was it was affecting everything he did. But he, there he was thinking that he was, like he he described before, thinking that he had arrived. You know, he started out to overcome Walter Hagen. He was going to be the greatest golfer ever. And then it says, liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. The progression of the disease was just getting worse and worse. I began to be jittery in the morning. I mean, he was having the the uh, the real physical effects also of of the alcohol, and um, his life was becoming more and more unmanageable. You know, at this point in his life, Bill was very prideful and self-centered, and he just he was interested in having fun, in being part of this this wild world. And uh, I love where he says, I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do. I mean, he thought he had arrived. He thought he had it made. And he was going to the local bank and, and depositing fat checks, even though he, he, he now, later as he writes this, says that the uh, banker had amused skepticism. So Bill Bill didn't have that at that time, but, but the others around him saw what was happening. And um, this is just another phase in the, uh, in the addiction process where our thinking is out of control, our behavior is out of control, and we are not leaning on a, on a higher power which can guide us. We, it's self-will, uh, and believe me, I... I understand that it it's it's when we allow self will to take over and we think we know better than God does uh, just a very very sad place to be and thank God you know Bill finds a way out of that later and with that I'll pass thank you thank you Judy would anyone else like to share on this paragraph this is Suzanne Kim Suzanne and Kim hi good morning uh, what sticks out for me in that is two things. He talks about being jittery in the morning. I, actually, I want to go back and say what really sticks out is as I, when I became absent, realized how food had 
been so much a part of my life, and I just went through many years saying, oh, I just like to eat, oh, I just like junk food. And then the clarity that came when I put the food down, um, it made me aware. And there were certain substances that I put down at the beginning, and I'm still very new to this, um, and I thought that was all I needed to do. And then as the weeks progressed, I realized, oh, no, there are other things that have a grasp on me. And uh, I've been putting them down, too, as I become aware of it. And that in the morning, waking up jittery, as I was saying before, I would wake up in the morning and crave certain things that I realized now is my body wanting sugar. Um, and it, it, to become aware on a regular basis of how food affected every part of my life is eye-opening. I say eye-opening is a good word for that. So that's it. Thank you. I passed. Thank you, Susan. Good morning, Kim. Go ahead. Good morning, Monica. Good morning, my fellows. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. Liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. Golf committed drinking every day and every night. You know, still has such a cute sense of humor in this um, paragraph, and and this is the the power of someone who is recovered telling their story. This story has depth and weight because he's looking back on it now with sanity. So he's laughing at himself. You know, Walter Hagen was the Tiger Woods of his time. Of course, liquor caught up with him faster. How many of us thought, well? You know, I'm going to go into computers and I'm going to beat Steve Jobs or I'm going to de- go into decorating and I'm going to beat Martha Stewart. I'm going to become an actress and I should have an Oscar in about three years. The arrogance of him. He said, but liquor caught up with me much faster than I came upon Walter. Goff permitted drinking every day and every night. So we think about how can we plug in our story? You know, think about our activities. What are we doing? He was golfing because that was allowed him to drink. That's why he picked that hobby. He didn't pick another hobby that he couldn't drink. He picked the hobby that he could do during the day and openly drink and enjoy his liquor. But the liquor became more important than the golf. So are you on the PTA? Are you helping with your, your son's baseball team? And when they need volunteers, are you volunteering to sell tickets? Or are you volunteering to run the snack bar? You know, when the kids are coming at work and the parents are coming to try to sell stuff, are you buying the wrapping paper or are you buying the food products? You know, when when people have parties at their house, are you going to the ones that are selling the jewelry and the handbooks, the handbags, or are you going to the ones that are selling the food? If you're going to do a home party, are you doing the candles or are you selling the food? We gravitate towards the food activities and then we use this rationalization, well, I need to earn some extra cash for my family. I have to do these home parties. I want to be a good mother. I have to work the snack bar. I want to support my coworkers. I have to buy those. those. That's our rationale. I remember in college, my sorority, we had all these different fundraisers. But I chose to sell the M&Ms. And I have to tell you, I was the best seller of M&Ms. Not because I sold M&Ms, but because I consumed M&Ms. It was a very expensive fundraiser for me. I couldn't not eat them. We have a whole TV network now that is dedicated to food, the Food Network, and people watch that for hours and wonder why they can't get the food out of their mind. So we have to learn, you know, golf permitted drinking all day and every night. 
So what can we do? How can we do that? I mean, a lot of my beginning was how do I redefine these holidays? You know, the 4th of July can be about the fireworks and not about the barbecue. The Halloween can be about the kids dressing up in the costumes, not sitting there with a bowl of candy hoping the kids don't ring the doorbell. The Thanksgiving can be about giving gratitude and thanks and not about the smorgasbord meal that we're going to have. So Bill is acknowledging that, that he was picking this golf in order to justify his drinking. How can we plug that in? What are the activities in our life that we are using as excuses to have that love relationship with the food? And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Would anyone else like to share in this paragraph? Barbara? Barbara, go ahead. Thank you. This is Barbara. I'm a compulsive overreader. Um, I'm so glad to be reading this this morning. I hadn't thought of it before, but I'm seeing it today, that my uh, substitution for golf with Bill was movies. From, from the time I was very young, my cousins and I found the escape in movies. It was a dark place. We could pile up the food and eat and eat and eat and dream and dream the way he dreamed of being Walter Hagen. I dreamed, oh, I'm, I'm going to be like Elizabeth Taylor someday. I mean, I was, you know, very young, and I'm going to be like Elizabeth Taylor. I'm going to be like so-and-so and wear that white dress and, and drive that car and have that leading man. So that the movies fed my fantasy, and it fed my development of the disease. And um, when I had to leave the movies and go out into reality, it was, it was brutal. It was harsh. And when he says, you know, it, um, it uh, permitted the drinking, well, it permitted my binging and my escape from, from life. But then, as life went on, I repeated that pattern. It was find and escape. Well, movies and dreams and novels and all the rest, uh, or isolation, whatever it was, it took me out of the reality. And it's only uh, the 12 steps and... Um, a higher power God for me and fellowship that brings me into reality and um, brings me away from that need to escape from it, which is what movies provided. And it allows my dreams to be realistic. And if they aren't, I have friends, thank God in the fellowship, who will see that it's coming back, you know, that, that weaving that web of, um, of the impossible dream. I love having a dream, and I love having plans of action now that accomplish those dreams. Thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Barbara. Would anyone else like to share on this paragraph? Leah. Leah, and then Sharon. Thank you so much, Monica. Good morning, everybody. My name is Leah, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Uh, Liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. Um, So now he's starting to have the uh, physical consequences of his drinking. You know, there's a noticeable uh, decrease, so to speak, in his ability to, to tolerate the alcohol. The alcohol consumption has increased and his ability for his body to handle that load is decreasing. So he's starting to get these physical consequences. And, of course, you know, now he's fixated on 
on on golf a little bit, you know, where he's structuring, you know, his uh, his day. He's structuring his life and activities to accommodate, to create more opportunities for uh, this activity of drinking, for this preoccupation with drinking. So he's structuring his day, as was previously mentioned. It says, I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do. The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with amused skepticism. I mean, this is the uh, denial and the delusion that we begin to create around the addiction. You know, any addiction really is a process of, of this delusion and this denial that's going on. He's unable Bill, right now, despite the physical consequences, of course, this is written in hindsight, but when you're in this spot, you're unable to really see this progression of the disease. You know, he's unable to see this onset and progression of alcoholism. He's got a distorted view. And this distorted view where, you know, as long as I look good, as long as things on the outside appear okay, as long as my physical circumstances seem under control, um, you know, it allows for the development and the progression of, of the disease, and that's exactly what happens. He's got a coat of tan, he's hanging around certain people, you know, playing in certain playpens, so to speak, and he's got this un this inability to see the reality of his condition, and that leads him to being blind to and to deny its existence. He's de denying the existence of alcohol. Believe me, if you interviewed Lois, I bet she would have a different viewpoint on life with Bill right now. But he, uh, as we all do, we create this delusion. You know, perhaps overweight people, uh, you know, they get more concerned about making sure their hair is just so and their nails and shunning mirrors in order to shut out reality. We have our own ways of denying what is going on. You know, we don't look in a mirror from the neck down. We concentrate on, you know, perhaps nails, hair, uh, loose clothing, whatever ways, you know, to, to deny and to uh, hide the consequences of what is going on. And with that willpower and with that determination, we will not surrender. We will not surrender. We continue to put up walls of denial and delusion and not take a look at what is happening. And what you see is not really what's happening. You know, what you see from the outside uh, is not really what's going on on the inside. What's going on on the inside is he's caught in the progression of a disease, and it's going to be a runaway train. Because he's got self-will run riot right now. He's thinking that physical uh, physical remedy will, will stabilize him. As long as he has money, as long as he has this coat of tan, as long as he is surrounding himself with um, you know, the right people, that that is going to create some stability in his life. And, of course, the disease is going to have its say. <laughs> and uh, we'll continue to see the progression, and that's true for us as well. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Sharon, go ahead. Good morning. This is Sharon, Recovered Compulsive uh, 
over either. Uh, thank you, Monica. Uh, the thing that I find uh, just interesting here is this amused skepticism. And he noticed it. He noticed that the banker was skeptical of him. And again, Bill is not taking any time for introspection, any time to pause, any time to uh, listen to, to, to the voice of God speaking, or quite frankly, to the voice of reason. And he ignored that uh, voice of God when he read the doggerel very early on that, that said early in his drinking career, there was God saying, stop, Bill, stop. Then he had Lois speaking to him. She was disturbed. Her drinking disturbed him. She talked about it with him. He didn't listen. Then he had the remonstrations of his friends. This is all, this is the way God speaks to us. God is speaking. And yet at some point, he would wonder uh, about God. Yet for all of us, I, I believe we could do the same type of assessment and find that there was the voice of a, the hand of a higher power throughout our life trying to corral us into the right direction, prevent us from going down that wrong path. And it's, it's um, really interesting to be able to look at Bill's story and see through this story the many times where there was that, um, uh, if we can call it the hand of God or the higher, our higher power, uh, trying to direct him and move him, get him to open up his mind to see that what he is doing is not uh, helping him in his life, is taking him down the wrong path. There is a better way. There is a different way for for you. Yet, Bill is not able to hear that because he is so full of his own Self, of his own ideas, on his of his own belief in this is the way it's done. He's looking around at what others are getting, and believing that that's what he needs. That's what that's what it means to be successful and happy, and that's what I have to get. Instead of where we are to where I know for myself, I've had to let that all go and program, and what I believe is to uh, what I've done and it's been difficult getting to this point but it's been absolutely marvelous to let go of my way this is what I think uh, let go of looking around me and thinking I need to get what this other person has then I will be happy then I will be joyous oh that's the way to freedom instead to sit back to pause and to allow my higher power to direct me oftentimes through these same ways directly through my heart maybe I read something it sparks me somebody says something in it and it lets me know I'm going the wrong way or uh, a friend will speak up and say something now I listen in the past I was very much like Bill burling my way through life 
forcing out anything except for what I see, what I want, what I know. And and now I have found a better way, and that is to pause, to listen, to allow reflection and allow God to speak to me through other people, through my reading and through uh, my life experiences as I listen. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Sharon. And this is Monica, and I would just like to say, um, you know, in this paragraph here, we're seeing another delusion of grandeur here by Bill, like some some others have pointed out this morning. And I began to be jittery in the morning. You know, here's a physical progression, a physical sign, symptom of the alcoholism here we're seeing, to be jittery in the morning. And it was fun to caroom around the exclusive course which had inspired such awe in me as a lad. I looked up caroom, and I love Bill's use of words. Collision followed by a rebound. And I was sort of found to bounce around and do all this, but you know, there was a rebound effect to all of this, and definitely a rebound effect to his drinking. And we are reading Bill's story, and this is the progression of his illness. And the other thing here is, you know, he acquired a ta- uh, uh, impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do. You know, on the outside, it looked like Bill had quite the life here, you know. He's got money in his pocket. He's looking great. He's out playing golf. He's having a hell of a time. But what was it like inside? You know, on the outside, I too would put up that face and like, you know, make sure, like Leia was saying, you know, the hair was just nice and these things were nice. And, you know, being overly bubbly, overly friendly, you know, making the jokes. But inside I was dying. Would anyone else like to share on this paragraph before we move on? Hi, this is Carolyn. Carolyn, go ahead. Hi, Carolyn, compulsive overeater, and I know it well. You know, it's just so amazing to see how self-will is run riot, and and that's exactly what it is. It's always about looking for the next thing that's going to make me happy and then realizing that nothing can make me happy. Nothing can make me happy until I start doing what's right. And, you know, it's always, oh, but if I had this, if I had that, if I had money, I'd be all set. If I had, if I had, if, 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 and trying to play the director to make it all come into place. This is what what it was saying. It's all saying to me. It's like trying to be the director and being in charge of my own life. Self-will definitely is running riot all over the place here. And that's how my life was. It was everywhere. It was in every single direction. It, it, I couldn't stay still for any long periods of time. And today I can actually sit quietly and allow whatever's going to happen to happen and just be a spectator and watch it unfold. I never in my life could have imagined such a thing. But, you know, just like with Bill, he was always searching for that next fix. That next fix, I need that next fix. That's going to take care of me. Everything will be fine if I get that next fix. And that's how I was with food. Give me that next fix, I can make anything happen. Because I was delusional. I was so into the food, I was delusional. And I had no idea 
how living life on life's terms, what that even meant. I was living life on life's terms, my terms. That's what it was. It was my terms. But, you know, coming into program and finding what truly was important in my life, finding God as my director, was the answer to all my problems today. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Carolyn. And let's move on to the next paragraph. And Michelle, would you read that, please? Good morning, Monica. Good morning, everyone. This is Michelle H. in the Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Missouri. Abruptly, in October 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was 8 o'clock five hours after the market closed. The ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of the tape which bore the inscription XYZ-32. It had been 52 that morning. I was finished, and so were many friends. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. My friends had dropped several million since 10 o'clock. So what? Tomorrow was another day. As I drank, the old fierce determination to win came back. And um, reading this paragraph this morning, um, it really has impacted me how um, this is the picture of alcoholism. This is the picture of um, what happens uh, for compulsive overeaters, too, like myself. Um, I'm in the food. It's like I'm oblivious um, to what's happening to everybody else, and I'm I'm focused on me. Um, you know, it says he wobbled um, from the hotel bar, and so I was thinking when I was reading this, wobbled. You know, that's unsure footing. I'm kind of unsteady, and as long as I'm relying on myself and not on a higher power, I'm I'm certainly wobbled. I'm certainly on un you know uncertain footing. Um, I don't know where I'm going because I'm leading myself. And I was just thinking as he, you know, with, you know, the impact that he was finished, but so were many of his friends, um, and men jumping to their death, and he's saying that disgusted him. Um, You know, there's no compassion there. There's no thinking of others. And that's the disease of alcoholism. This is the disease of compulsive overeating is that – You know, I have no compassion for others. I'm thinking only of self. I'm self-centered. I'm selfish. I'm self-seeking. I'm thinking, you know, only how, what, you know, what's going to happen to me? How can I help myself? Um, And that's what happens when I'm under the influence of a substance. For me, um, it was my binge foods. I was under a substance that anesthetized me to what was going on around me and um, not concerned with um, how my behavior might be affecting others. And Bill was a stockbroker. He had made some deals, you know, didn't seem to be too concerned how his behavior, because it wasn't all his fault, but, you know, I just don't see um, how my behavior is impacting others. And um, they were jumping from the towers of high finance. That's where, um, you know, the reliance was, high finance. And I see that in capital letters. So, you know, that's what Bill was worshiping. That was his higher power. And... um, there's no saving grace there, but there's a saving grace from a higher power, not from high finance. If I would just have seen it, how many times had I been in a position where I, you know, was at a place of defeat, but what did I do? I did the same thing that Bill would do. 
that old fierce determination to win, to win, to win. Um, it was all about me. How could I take care of me? Um, life may be crumbling around me, and I could have taken hold at that time and said, well, I'm defeated. I can't go on um, because only until I surrender um, can God come in. As long as I think I've got that fierce determination to win left in me, as long as there's that shred of, you know, I can beat this, um, God can't come in. I'm blocking him. I'm not powerless. So this paragraph reminds me, you know, in Bill's story, we're in, it's about step one. It's about seeing my life um, as unmanageable. Um, as long as I've got the food, I don't feel my life's unmanageable. As long as I've got the food, I don't think I'm powerless. I, I need to um, come out from under that influence. I need to put it down. And, um, again, this was just a, a reminder to me, um, you know, just what it looks like, the self-centeredness, the self-will run riot. Um, and, and I was blind to it, just like Bill. You know, we know how the story ends, and we, we see quite a contrast um, when Bill finally does feel defeated, when he finally does surrender and he turns his life around and helps so many, many people. But here in the disease, he was not in position, just like me, to help anybody. And um, certainly he was trying to run his life on self-will. And as um, I'm reminded, it brought to mind on page 60 that, you know, the first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. And on that basis, we are most always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. And um, that's a good reminder to me. So big picture here, a good picture, a reminder of the unmanageability. Um, and I have to see that I'm I'm powerless before I can um, accept any help from anybody or especially a higher power. But Bill's not seeing himself as powerless here. And um, neither did I until, until I felt completely defeated and ready to surrender. With that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Would anyone like to share on this paragraph? This is Vered. This is Rita. I heard Kim, Vered, and Rita. Kim, go ahead. Thanks, Monica. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. You know, all that tongue-in-cheek is so funny. I mean, I have a a lot of alcoholism in my family, and I would go to holiday dinners, and I'd watch all my cousins get sloppy drunk, and it disgusted me. But, of course, I was offering to clean up the kitchen and go in the kitchen and binge my brains out. So I'm judging them about how they handle their stress when I'm just doing a different form of it. They're going for the liquor to deal with the the, uh, tension in the family, and I'm going into the kitchen by myself and binging my brains out. And that's what Bill is saying. They're picking the quick suicide. He's picking the slow suicide. You know, I would break up with somebody, and I would say, you know what, Saturday night I'm going to have my own little menage a trois, and it was me, Ben, and Jerry. You know, if there was tension at work and people would go to happy hour to relax, I would go home and I'd hang out with my friends Sarah Lee and Betty Crocker. You know, we always judge how other people handle stressful situations but we're doing it to ourselves. You know, I remember in my early 20s in the depths of my disease and I had gotten fired from a job and suddenly I was in a fast food restaurant binging my brain. I don't even know how I got there. 
But after coming to, to LA for a few years, I got fired from another job. The company closed. And we were told that we, we no longer had a job. And suddenly, I was in an LA meeting. I don't even know how I knew where it was. I don't go to meetings during the day. So that is the difference. We're going to have to learn to lean towards something else besides the food. But at this point, Bill's not even realizing. Well, he's realizing to a certain extent, but as a recovered person, he's looking back. We judge how other people handle stuff. How dare they jump from the towers, yet he's going to go back to the bar. How dare my cousins get sloppy drunk, yet I'm going in the kitchen and I am binging my brains out. So that is a beautiful lesson. Is that what we're doing? Are we coping with things in a way that we are just saying that it is better for us to behave this way than how other people handle situations? And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Varid, go ahead. Hi, this is Varid, the recovered compulsive overeater from Israel. Um, this paragraph just reminds me of myself in the disease, being really like a baby. Whatever comes up, any problem, I just cover my eyes. Problem doesn't exist. I eat, then nothing exists. I really just shut myself down. I don't feel anything, and the problem doesn't exist. And when this whole disease is a disease of negative thinking, because obviously there were people who chose not to jump from a tower, just, you know, went through a catastrophe, and things happen in life even if uh, to people who are responsible. And many things, many tragedies can happen. People get sick, people lose their money, there is a fire. Many things that are even, most things are not, you know, in our hands. They just happen. But in this disease, the only choices that Bill could see in the disease is or to jump or to go and drink if the problem doesn't exist. And when I think about my illness, when the progress, this progressive illness keeps progressing, the, the problems are just piling up and all of a sudden there is a tower of problems. And when I get sober and all of a sudden I open my eyes, what do I see? I get abstinence oh my gosh, how can I handle these huge piles, towers of problems? And the only, only, only way to really start looking in the eyes to what's happening in life is to really seek God because no one else can help me to overcome all the damage I have um, brought on myself by just closing my eyes, problem doesn't exist. And thank God, through this program, I, I have learned to really reach up and receive help. And what we really learn in this program is that there are problems in life sometimes. And the question is, is how do I do something differently? How do I seek for help? How do I not make the same mistake again and expect a different result? And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Jared. Rita, go ahead. Good morning. This is Rita. I'm a compulsive overeater. Uh, I This story really uh, hit home for me. I mean, uh, I'm not recovered at this point, but I can tell you, when I was 23 years old, 
uh, I had all the symptoms of this disease, not the physical, but definitely the mental obsession. And uh, I was at Children's Hospital in Boston, and uh, I had just got the worst news of my life. My um, son, who was about nine months old, they said he had tubular sclerosis and uh, that he wasn't going to live to be six years old. Well, I mean, he's now 44, so that was a little bit wrong. But uh, anyway, it was the worst news, and he has had a hard life. However, um, I, I we left there, and I was with my mother and my ex-husband, and there was a time where you went in the, uh, you know, the drugstores. My mother said, I need to get a cup of coffee. So we went in, and I can still see her sitting there having her coffee and my husband just standing there. And I ordered this banana split. My mother looked at me, and she said to me, it's got the worst news of your life. How, how can you sit there and eat that? I had no clue I had, you know, a disease. I just knew that it was comforting me. And that, and I was fantasizing that they made a mistake and that this is not, you know, that I had to leave my uh, my son there. And I was thinking they made they made a mistake. They're not. I, I fantasized. I, I, I for a year after that, I fantasized that he was walking, talking, and doing all the things that he never did do. But I was in that disease. And when I was eating there, that way back then, you know, uh, I didn't go home. I didn't cry. I sat there, uh, of all things, doing that not realizing that I had something wrong with me. And uh, the physical part never happened to me till I was in my about mid-30s. But still, I know as well as can be that I had this disease back then. But I never, until I started reading Bill's story, I read it before, but until it was explained to me, could I relate it to me and how much I'm like him. It's painful. Uh, to think the things that I did, but I'm so glad that now I know that, you know, I have a disease and that I'm sick and I'm trying to get well, that I'm not a bad person trying to be good anymore. And uh, for that, I'm grateful, and I'm grateful for everybody that's on the other end here. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Rita. Would anyone else like to share on this paragraph before we move on? Rose? I heard Rose and someone else. Kimmy? 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 Yes. Yes. Okay, Rose and then Kimmy. Thank you, Monica. Uh, This is Rose, recovered compulsive overeater in New York. Um, This one last sentence. As I drank, the old fierce determination to win came back. Um, This whole paragraph uh, where Bill is saying he's better than other men, Um, But this last sentence where he's stating um, that he's in total reliance on himself, this pierces me to the core. Um, Until last year, this was me. Um, As I ate, as I compulsively overate um, throughout the day, in good times, in bad times, in all times, I habitually addictively, compulsively overate in order to live life on life's terms, which I could not do without food. As I overate, the old fierce determination uh, to win, win at life, win in relationships, win at finding a magic solution to my unhappiness, win at having me be free of anger and self-pity, 
win at having all the answers, win at looking good. Uh, just win, win, or or find out the find find the answers that were going to give me inner happiness, inner peace, inner freedom from this um, monster that I seem to be living with daily. I I I didn't know that being fat. Uh, I didn't say that was a monster. Um, but the thing that happened is that when <clears throat> uh, God's grace, when first the gift of desperation was given, and whereas Bill hadn't gotten this far yet, um, when I was uh, able to admit I was powerless, that'll be coming up here, my old fierce determination <clears throat> was... Uh, literally smashed for me. I couldn't pull it together anymore with food. It 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 wouldn't happen. And um, uh, and that opened the door. Which um, and when we get into the second half of Bill's story, we'll go into describing what happened to him. But but having that old fierce determination through the power of the food and the addiction to pull my life together. Thank you, God, that 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 was broken for me. With that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Kimmy, go ahead. Thank you, Monica. Hi, my name is Kimmy, a recovered compulsive overeater from Connecticut. Really grateful to be here. I'm not able to get to this meeting live too much, so this is a real treat. The um, sentence that stuck out for me was, tomorrow was another day, and in my food, there was always another tomorrow. Today, the calories didn't count. Today, the problems didn't exist. There was no impact in my life on what happened today connected to tomorrow. And we really see that with Bill. I mean, tomorrow in this story really ended up being, you know, the beginning of the end for the depression and all kinds of uh, real turmoil in our country. And yet tomorrow for him was just another day. It's just another example of how the substances really can numb us in the sense that, you know, he talked about friends, you know, dump, jumping from from towers and he was going back to the bar. There was really no uh, severity of this situation for him, although he realized he was losing money and that impacted him because it impacted his pocketbook, a defective character. There was no real impact on the true severity or the nature of what was happening, and it was really because liquor, liquor took that away from him. And so many times in the disease, you know, day in and day out, you know, terrible things happened in my life, and just tomorrow was another day. And when I got recovery, it, I was so grateful for, you know, being able to be present in that moment and not worrying about tomorrow. Today was all I had, 24 hours. These were the only minutes that counted. And um, through the grace of God, I was able to really focus on what that meant for myself and for others and how to be of service. And even in this story, he doesn't talk about being of service, of going you know, to help console friends who also lost money or, you know, getting together to support one another. It was every man for themselves. 
and that is, you know, just another true example of how the disease really, you know, can grab a hold and, you know, rob us of that ability to be of service. And once we are recovered, how we are much more others-focused than self-focused. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Kimmy. Sharon, would you like to read the next paragraph, please? This is Sharon, a gratefully recovered compulsive overeater. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left and thought I had better go to Canada. By the following spring, we were living in our custom style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No St. Helena for me, but drinking caught up with me again and my generous friend had to let me go. This time, we stayed broke. So here it was. It was the beginning of the end. Uh, He had gone to Montreal to... uh, Here's another opportunity because, of course, he couldn't see... He couldn't hear God. He couldn't see God. He couldn't see, quote-unquote, the handwriting on the wall... So he couldn't change, so he had to keep doing the same thing that he had done before. It didn't work before, but that was all he could see. So let's do a geographical cure, move to another location. But guess what? He took himself with him, as 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 we do. We know that geographical cures do not help. We have to change ourselves within or else the problem is just going to follow us because guess what? We're creating our own problems. We create our own troubles. And that's what he did in Montreal. And you can't blame the friend who let him go. Uh, The friend, uh, you can't say it was just a fair-weather friend in this case. We don't know what that person was like, but uh, he as as anyone would just just was done with it and had to move on and there bill was uh, of course followed by his loyal wife he was there and this time it was over there was no uh regaining it again and what we realize for all of us who are compulsive overeaters that the day will come when our luck runs out, so to speak, quote-unquote, the day will come when it's over. We can't, uh, we have no options. We can't then pick up and go over here and start again. We can't go on one more diet because there's, no open door. There's no way out. And I got to that point where that was it. I there I I know that one bite led to the next bite, to the next, to the next, to the next. There was no gap. There was no okay, I'm gonna uh just eat normally for the next few meals and then have my binge tonight 
I lost all control. I couldn't pick myself up. And this is what happened with Bill. This is going to happen with every addict if we keep on because this is a progressive disease. We start off, most most of us, slowly. And then just like a a steam engine, a locomotive that slowly picks up, up steam until it's just burling down that track. But the difference between us and a train is that it's we're for me I was blindly going. There is no direction, there is no way forward that's clean and clear. It was whichever way the track was leading, that's the way I went. There was no control, no I whatever my self will was didn't matter. It was the will of the food that led me wherever it wanted me to go. I was just along for the ride. And and it's very that's so very interesting because here Bill, the person who thought he could control it all, manage it all, convinced his wife, you know, just look, uh early on he said Great ideas come from men who drink. We rule the world our way. We create our future. We create what happens. And here, that can't. That doesn't happen anymore for him. He's a total victim of king alcohol, totally ruled and dominated, totally defeated. He's going to try again and again and again from this point. And we'll see that this is it. They stayed broke. He could never again. It, the food won out and defeated him completely. But he doesn't know that yet. He doesn't know it yet. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Sharon. And thank you to everyone who has shared We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. And Fran, would you read the vision for you, please? Yes. Good morning, Monica. Good morning, vision for you. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellow. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Yes. Yeah.